Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. Well, we are continuing our walk through the parables of Jesus. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, taking a look or just really focusing on his parables. We've looked at the parable of the soil, the parable of mustard seeds, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the treasure buried in a field, the parable of the pearl of great price. Last week, we looked at the parable of these kosher foods, where Jesus says it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of them is what defiles them. Uh, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and slander. And this week, we're going to continue our journey on the parables of Jesus, looking at the parable of leaven to understand what Jesus teaches about the nature of unbelief, particularly the unbelief, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, one of the things that people often assume when they come to a church service is that they may be the only one questioning their faith, or they may be the only one that's not a believer or follower of Christ here at Westminster. While we know that many who are here are followers of Christ, we don't want to make that assumption. We, we uh, regularly have visitors. We regularly have people who are seekers and skeptics. And so we welcome you. We want you to have the opportunity to have the honest dialogue and to investigate and be in process to discover uh, what Jesus has said about himself and what he's claimed and who he is. So it's our delight to try to do that, and you can help us do that better uh, by just continuing to engage in respectful conversation. So first, I I, want to kind of give you an outline of the passage uh, to develop a clear understanding of the nature of unbelief. We're going to, you know, compare the unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees with that of the disciples. And then secondly, we want to look at how Jesus responds or treats unbelief. And again, we'll compare how he responds to the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is a little bit different than how he responds to the disciples. And then lastly, we're going to look in the mirror, look at our own unbelief and doubts, and evaluate it and discuss what's to be done. So let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. You can follow along uh, in the, the guide, the worship guide that we handed out to you. Matthew writes this, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And so Jesus left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the disciples began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? 
Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? I said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, first, to understand unbelief, we got to compare the unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees with that of the disciples. First, let's talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Contrary to popular belief, those skeptical of Jesus, who really never came to believe in him, were not of one social class or one political party. The Pharisees represented the moral conservatives who believed in the full authority of the Old Testament, but the Sadducees represented the liberal elites who believed only in the first five books of Moses and dismissed the authority of the rest of the Old Testament. The Pharisees believed in miracles. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in life after death, eternal life, the resurrection of the dead. But the Sadducees, they mocked the idea of life after death. They believed that this life is all that exists. The Pharisees, they were serious about standing up against the moral compromise of culture and the moral degradations of the day. The Sadducees believed that the Israelite religion was like other religions. It was a social construct. In other words, the Sadducees believe that the stories of the Old Testament were, were useful, even if fictional. They, they viewed religion as primarily a tool of political power. Sadducees represented the, the priestly class, and their definition of moral living was not only flexible, living morally wasn't all that important. For God didn't really take much interest in it. After all, God didn't punish or reward people in the afterlife. And so religious ritual, according to the Sadducees, just served a practical use for relieving a troubled conscience or formulating order in society. But God was little more than an ideology, according to the Sadducees, certainly not a person who involved himself in human, human affairs. And so in the ruling class here, we have the Pharisees, who are the right-wingers, and the Sadducees, who are the left-wingers, and both are skeptical of Jesus, but for very different reasons. The Pharisees were threatened by Jesus' teaching on mercy and grace and forgiveness. The Sadducees were threatened by Jesus' popularity and that the people were taking him too seriously and the threat he posed to their status as well as to the stability of their institutions. What does this all mean? People then, like people now, were skeptical of Jesus for various reasons. Not much has changed. Jesus angered and challenged conservatives and liberals. Anyone who thought they had more to lose than to gain by Jesus' lordship and ascendancy. And so what we see here is actually a very strange alliance forming to challenge Jesus. Look at verse 16. It says, uh, verse 1, And the Sadducees and Pharisees came, and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, while the Pharisees and Sadducees, as you can see, have very little in common politically or theologically, they were committed to the old ways, the common ways. Common ways that think people are still committed to, either conservatism or liberalism. But Jesus 
was neither. He was an innovator. And neither of them could tolerate this. The fact that these two groups were united in their opposition to Jesus should show you how desperate they were. They had decided to combine forces to discredit Jesus. And once he was discredited, they could go back to their old opposition and arguments with one another. So in summary, as we see with the Pharisees, sometimes skepticism and unbelief is rooted in conservatism and moralism. But as with the Sadducees, sometimes it's rooted in liberalism and relativism and politics. But we see with both the Pharisees and Sadducees, sometimes unbelief is just, it's determined and it's insolent. They're so threatened, so resistant, they possess such skepticism, they're willing to form these very strange alliances to team up with their political enemies to discredit Jesus and his kingdom. Because Jesus was a unique threat to everyone. And Jesus remains a unique threat today. But not all unbelief is like this. The disciples also evidence a different kind of unbelief. Did you see it? The disciples evidence a a form of doubt that is rooted more in a failure to connect the dots, to consider the full implications of what Jesus has already taught, what he's already done among them, what he's already shown them. So we need to keep in mind that even though the disciples want to follow Jesus and they want to understand and honor his perspective, and they want to live according to his ways, still they often fail to see just how far they are misaligned with Jesus and his perspective and his take on the truth and his ways. And if you look at verse 5, you see how a simple miscommunication exposes how differently the disciples are thinking compared to Jesus. How so? Let's look at it. The disciples, right, in their haste to depart from Galilee, neglected to pack the groceries. Now, it should be pointed out from the end of chapter 15 and in verse 4 of chapter 16, Jesus and his disciples, they had just arrived from Gentile territory. But they didn't stay long due to the insolence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Jesus decided to leave suddenly and return back to Gentile territory. And after they reach the other side, this Gentile territory, as the disciples are unloading, one of them notices that they had forgotten to pack the groceries, to bring any bread. Now, no doubt, after a long, stressful day of watching Jesus argue with all the political powers of the day, they would have been tired and frustrated. Their stomachs probably weren't the only things grumbling You can imagine the scene if you've ever gone on a camping trip and forgotten to pack something important or forgotten to pack the food. There's rolling eyes. There's sighs. There's sassy comments. They're frustrated. They are in a frustrated frame of mind. They are hungry and angry, what I like to call hangry. They're exhausted, irritable. Maybe they're anxious. And Jesus says in verse 6, while they're in that frame of mind, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Well, that went right over their head. And they began to discuss among themselves saying, is Jesus saying that because we forgot the bread? What is going on here? They think Jesus is rebuking them for being forgetful. And he is rebuking them for being forgetful, but not in the way 
that they imagine. Contrary to their initial impression, Jesus was not rebuking them for failing to remember the details, for neglecting to double-check on things. Rather, he, bu- he rebukes them for what their conversation exposes about their heart. Namely, they had forgotten who was in the boat with them. While Jesus is not rebuking them for forgetting the details, he is rebuking them for failing to see the big picture, for neglecting to remember that Jesus had faithfully provided for them bread time and time and time again. And they forgot that he was more than sufficient. Look at it in verse 8. But Jesus, listening to their conversation, said, Oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that we have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many basketfuls were gathered afterwards? The answer is 12. 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And then he says, or of the seven loaves and the 4,000 people that I fed and how many basketfuls you gathered afterwards? The answer was seven. Seven basketfuls of leftovers. In other words, what Jesus had provided was more than enough. And so he says, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? See, when they had a shortage of bread before, it was not them who Jesus relied on. It was they who relied on Jesus. And here they were focusing on themselves, their diligence, their faithfulness, their their self-reliance, not their dependence on Jesus. And to be clear, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the disciples, their unbelief is not insolent. They're not out to test Jesus or to discredit him or to catch him in his words, to prove him wrong. They don't share that type of determined unbelief with the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples' unbelief is a different kind. Even if it has a similarity of degree, while the disciples' unbelief may be as consistent as the Pharisees and Sadducees, it comes from a different heart. And that's important to point out. For truth be told, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, the disciples were just as capable of seeing miracles and dismissing them, or at least not seeing them as sufficient. And in some ways, the disciples' unbelief is of a higher degree. Remember, the disciples were actually participating with Jesus in the miracle of multiplying bread for the crowds, and yet they still doubt it. Let that be a warning to all of us who assume that if only God brought a miracle into my life, then I would fall down and believe in him. Don't be so sure. The pattern of scripture is that God's people, even after seeing miracles, even after experiencing deliverance, even after encountering healing, still worried about their present circumstances, still neglected to trust Jesus in the present, even when they saw how he had provided so faithfully again and again and again in the past. The Pharisees and Sadducees had seen miracles and doubted, and likewise, the disciples had doubts. So if we measure the degree of their doubt, they're both quite stubborn despite the evidence. But while their stubborn belief may be of a similar degree, it is of a different kind. The Pharisees and Sadducees put Jesus to the test because they wanted to discredit him. They wanted to dismiss him. The disciples put Jesus to the test without even realizing they were doing so. They were just completely blind to their unbelief. They complained about having no bread. They were sitting around in a boat with the bread of heaven. But they, unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, they really do want to trust Jesus. They just kept getting in their own way. 
their worries and fears and inhibit them from connecting the dots of making inferences. Some of you are here and your doubt is more like that of the disciples. You trust Jesus, you believe him, at least you know you should. He's provided for you again and again. But yet, you fail to connect the dots of what he's done in the past to what he's doing right now. And the hope of Christian growth is that God is very patient with us. He's patient to get his promises deep, deep down into our heart so that when we're in that frustrated state of mind, we more and more naturally trust that he will provide, that he is good and that he is with us. But others of you might be here, and your skepticism really is more like that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If Jesus is who he said he was, if he's king and Lord, that means that your life has to change. That means you have to change how you live, maybe change how you work. You not only have to change what you believe, you have to go back and maybe have some conversations and repent and change your whole worldview, and and that's costly. But if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, that's exactly what you have to do. And so some people weren't willing to entertain that, and like the Pharisees and Sadducees, they only wanted to prove him wrong. So how does Jesus treat these two different kinds of unbelief? The willful unbelief of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the neglectful or thoughtful unbelief of the disciples. Well, first, he points out their hypocrisy. Look at verse 2 when he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. See, it should be noted that Jesus had offered many signs and wonders by this point. His healings, even his raising of a dead ruler's daughter in Matthew 9, were not done in secret. It's why the crowds followed him. But Leon Morris pointed out, while it might be reasonable to argue that Jesus' miracles of healing were signs from heaven, that is not the way his enemies saw them. They wanted something more, something spectacular, a sign from heaven. But Jesus challenges their request. Instead of giving them a sign to overcome their stubborn doubt, he challenges their skepticism and shows how Honestly, it's just disingenuous. And so Jesus pokes at their doubt with an ironic illustration, considering the circumstances. They want a sign from heaven, and so he says, well, you already know about signs from heaven. You already know how to interpret signs from the skies that God has given in this region, right? Red sky at night, shepherds delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherds take warning. It's interesting that you know how to interpret the signs of the heavens, but you can't interpret the signs of the times, Jesus says. For the Old Testament predicted what it would be like when the Messiah came. That the Messiah, when he came, he would be powerful but humble. That the Spirit of the Lord would be upon him and he would do great things. He would preach good news to the poor. He would proclaim liberty to captives. He would give recovery of sight to the blind. He would set at liberty those who were oppressed. He would declare the year of the Lord's favor. And that is exactly what Jesus had been doing, fulfilling all of those signs in his public ministry, healing the blind, preaching good news of forgiveness, liberating people held captive by sin and death. 
And so while Jesus commends the Pharisees and Sadducees for their ability to interpret the smaller signs of the daily weather patterns that God gives, he challenged their refusal to to discern the great events of what God was doing in their midst and how it all pointed to Jesus in every way. So first, Jesus uses reason to point out their hypocrisy and blindness, and he actually calls it evil and adulterous. And then he, he does offer them a sign, a sign that they need, not one that they demand. And as he does this, he's going to plant a seed in their willful mind, a seed that's designed to take root and leave them restless in their unbelief. In verse 4, look at it. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. Now notice he castigates them as an evil and adulterous generation. He's signifying the people living at that time. And like someone who commits adultery, they profess one thing but do something else. They're false. They profess, profess to be the people of God, but they walk in evil ways. They're even false in their skepticism. They're not honest about their skepticism. And so he continues, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. Now, Matthew talks about this sign of Jonah five times. And each time it's used, it's in response to the people's demand for sign. And in Matthew 12, Jesus makes clear that the sign of Jonah was Jonah's reappearance after being in the belly of a fish for three days. And here, Jesus says, you need the sign of Jonah, but he doesn't explain anymore. Matthew simply says that Jesus left them without explaining it. Why? When you have this type of insolent skepticism and doubt, there comes a time when it's counterproductive to continue the conversation. And Jesus reached that point with the Pharisees and Sadducees, so he leaves. He leaves rather hastily. He's not going to jump through their hoops. He's not going to dignify their ridiculous skepticism. There's no more debate, no further explanation, no more conversation. He tells his disciples to hop back in the boat and let's go. And he leaves the Pharisees and Sadducees to think about what he's already said. And you may think, well, Jesus is so rude here. He's, he's just shutting the door on them. But actually, he's not shutting the door. He's actually planting a seed He's extending a mercy, but one that will take time for them to see it germinate. By referring to the sign of Jonah, Jesus plants a seed that will only make sense later when, like Jonah, Jesus will rise from the depths of the grave after three days, and he will do so to complete his mission as the risen Savior. And so while he does not jump through their hoops and give them the sign they demand, he gives them the sign they need. And like that seed that gets stuck between the cracks of hardened concrete and sprouts up to new life, Jesus gives them something that may later penetrate between the cracks of the hardest heart, and it should at least leave them restless in their unbelief when they hear rumors of Jesus' appearance from the depths of the grave three days after his death on a cross. See, Jesus maintains strong boundaries with those whose mind is already made up. He refused to play games. He refused to give more signs on demands, but he is willing to give you what you need. Well, how about the disciples? He responds a little bit differently. He doesn't up and leave. Rather, he stays in conversation. That is, when it's a conversation, 
not when it's demand after demand like it was with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And you see in this conversation, he reminds them, he's like, do you remember five fish and 5,000 people? How many did we have left over? Twelve, that's right. How about the 4,000? How many do we have left over? Yes, seven baskets. He reasons with them. He endures patiently. In other words, while he leaves the Pharisees and Sadducees, who have a dishonest doubt, he abides with the disciples who just have weakness of faith. But he also does have strong words for the disciples. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And after reasoning with the disciples in verse 12, Matthew Matthew records that they finally understood that Jesus was not talking about the leaven of bread, but about the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I wonder if that was an overstatement. Like they finally understood. Maybe a little bit better, but probably not entirely. Now, it's curious to note that the word teaching here, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, is singular, even though Jesus is referring to two groups that were very different and taught very different things. So what does this mean? Well, what they held in common was very limited. It was very clear. The one thing they held in common, the one teaching they held in common, among all the things they had that were very, very different, was they were united in their inability to see the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the divine man, as the Savior who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. They were united in their determination to undermine his teaching and his mission. So what does this mean? We need to beware of any teaching, conservative or liberal, that leads us away from trusting in Jesus Pharisees will lead you away by saying you don't need a savior because you're a pretty good person. You need discipline. You need effort. You need to pray more. You need to fast. You need to read your Bible. And if you do these things, you can earn God's good favor into your life. You can earn his blessing. And Jesus says, no, I have come to do what you cannot do to earn what you could never earn. I've come to save you from your sin, to live a life that you have failed to live, to pay the penalty for the life that you have lived so that you can be forgiven of your sin by grace. Undeserved grace. Now, the Sadducees will lead you away in another way by saying, well, religion is just a social construct. There's no afterlife. All that matters about your beliefs is that they work for you or they help your community have an identity, right? That it's all about the here and now, the practical outworkings. It doesn't matter if it's true. It just matters if it works. And Jesus says, no, I have come to do real things, to provide a real eternity, to conquer death by rising victorious over it. And all those who are united to me by faith will also rise again and live eternally. That is true. And it's true whether or not You think it works for you. So don't believe it just because it works. Believe it because it's true. Don't believe it just because it makes you feel forgiven. Believe it because you actually are forgiven by my substitutionary death for you in your place on the cross. So in closing, how does this all apply? Well, you need to evaluate your unbelief. What kind of unbelief pops up in in your life? You need to identify it, evaluate it, and then repent. 
Do you have anything in common with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Is there anything that could really convince you that God is real? That Jesus walked on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago? And that hundreds of people saw him raised from the dead? And that even many of his enemies who would have never believed in him bowed the knee and called him Lord and Savior? Is there anything that can begin to get you to doubt your doubts, to doubt your skepticism. See, if you are a Pharisee or Sadducee, if you are insolent in your unbelief, Jesus calls you to stop playing games. Be honest with your doubts. Because if you're not, dishonest doubt is really just a hard heart. It's a form of wickedness and adultery. It looks like doubt, but it's not doubt. It's just dogmatic faith in another thing, in yourself, in humanism, in some other faith and worldview. If you have that type of insolence, don't expect God to open the sky and show you any more miracles. He may do that because he's so gracious, but don't expect him. One, he's already done that. But what you can expect is he's already planted the sign that you need. Look to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wrestle there. Go back and look at history. Look at the evidence for and against. Look at how people have tried to explain it away for thousands of years, and many who have have bowed the knee before Christ because they became convinced he is Lord, and he actually did die and rise from the dead. Maybe you don't have as much in common with the Pharisees and Sadducees, but you have more in common with the disciples. You trust Jesus in theory. But in practice, unbelief pops up in your life regularly, daily. And when, like the disciples, you're in a frustrated frame of mind or you're tired or irritable, all of a sudden God's promises just sort of, you lose them like you lose your keys. Where'd my faith go? Where'd my keys go? If so, Jesus calls you to beware. Beware of anything that seeks to undermine your trust in Jesus and his word. For that is what the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was. Like the Pharisees, it could be a conservative religion, moralism, self-reliance, and pride. Pride that's unwilling to admit your doubts and work through it with a pastor or a friend. Maybe it's belief that you don't need a Savior. Or maybe it's a belief that the Savior that Jesus is isn't big enough for you. But Jesus is more than a Savior you will ever need. Maybe like a Pharisee, the things that separate you from Jesus or tempt you to be separated are more like a liberal idealism, a, a false teaching that denies objective truth. For you, 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 you are so caught up in sort of subjective experiences. It doesn't make it happy. Does it feel true? You know, our feelings are good barometers of what we think is true, but it's not a good barometer of what's actually true. And so what we need to do is beware of that and recognize that we believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior because it's true. Jesus, he not only rose from the dead, but he is reigning. And he's given us his spirit to give evidence and testimony to the reality of that. And so I'd encourage you, take him up on his word. Ask, seek, and knock. He is a God who loves to answer prayer. And he will show you him, himself and reveal his truth. Let us pray. 
God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that in it we see examples of unbelief. This encourages us because we see a lot of unbelief in our world. We see unbelief in our relationships with coworkers. We see unbelief in our family. We see unbelief in many places we look. We, look, we see it in our own hearts, and we see that you speak to it. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ who came to give us exactly what we need to navigate through unbelief and to trust in him, to see that he has given us all we need to know that he truly is Lord and Savior. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here tonight that, Lord, if they're cut to the heart, that maybe they haven't been honest with their doubts, that they would, they would repent and Repent of their insolence and skepticism and begin to doubt their doubts and consider the possibility that Jesus may be who he said he is. And I pray for our dear brothers and sisters who, who, who want to believe and want to trust in you but see themselves daily just failing to connect the dots. Even though you've provided, even though you've protected, even though you've proven yourself again and again, Lord, Lord, thank you for your patience and your mercy and the way you reason with us. And we pray that you would finish your good work and work this truth down in our hearts so that we trust in it and rest in it more and more. And so that we are greater, we have a greater ability to identify unbelief and repent of it and trust in you and rest in you and experience the joy and freedom and liberation of that. So Lord, we thank you for being a God who comes and helps us navigate through our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.